The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So, uh, usually once a month or so before I begin the talk, I just see if there are any questions that people might have about the basic sitting instructions. So, it's a good time if you have any questions about um, the basic instructions or something that's happened in your practice that seems difficult, you don't know how to work with it. Mm -hmm. That's a good, a good question. So if you didn't hear, what's your name? Dennis. Dennis was saying about working with the experience of being tired. And uh, partly we want to get a sense of what it, what it is, whether the body is physically exhausted or whether it's some imbalance in the mind. Um, because it's obvious what we need to do if the body's body and mind is just exhausted is we need to rest and sometimes that's that's one of the best lessons we can have in a sit is the sort of realization oh I need to take care of myself I need to go to bed you know I need to rest more so the, and that's unfortunately often the case for so many of us that uh, we're just not getting as much sleep as we might need but even if we take care of that, there's another big uh, obstacle in practice, which is this imbalance in the mind when uh, we've developed some talent, and maybe we, even, we haven't even had to practice to develop this talent. It might have been something we came with. But when we're able to calm the system down, the body and mind down, if we don't maintain interest, if there isn't a quality of the mind wanting to know, wanting to see clearly, then we will slide into either a trance state or some state of unconsciousness like sleep, heaviness. And so if this is especially true for people who've been practicing for a while, but if you feel like you're getting plenty of sleep, and then when you sit, you might feel quite you know, awake and normal consciousness when you start. But very shortly, a couple minutes, ten minutes into the sit, uh, it's like this very thick, uh, either trance-like state or very like, oh, just wanting to go asleep. The eyes get heavy, the whole mind seems to get heavy and mushy. Then one thing you can experiment with is to correct that imbalance. The, the tranquility, the ease, that's always good. Can't really get too much of that, but if it's out of balance with the interest, with the energy in the mind. So the question is, what could you do to bring more energy into your sitting practice? And generally, the the instruction then would be to make your mind work more, to to give the part of the mind that pays attention more to do, without creating tension. Now, people who are restless, this is the opposite instruction you'd want to get take. Because right, you would just get more restless, more bound up. But if, 
if there's a lot of tranquility but uh, not enough interest, then like if you're using your breath as an anchor, then try to train your mind not just to see the in-breath, but to see the very first moment of the in-breath, the middle middle, middle moment of the in-breath, and the very end of the in-breath. And seeing those three points in each in-breath and out-breath takes a lot of work. And that mental work to see the beginning, middle, and end of each breath will energize the mind. Another thing to do is just to more quickly and specifically note what's predominant. So you can note the breath. You can note the quality of the breath, like is it a long breath or a short breath, a smooth breath or a rough breath. So you're just noting what you're seeing, what's being known. It's like you're making your mind say a word or a couple words every few seconds. And then when you're distracted, you're noting that too. Oh, thinking, thinking, or judging, or worrying. So you can be quite specific about the kind of thinking, planning, remembering. And making the mind work like that will also energize, can energize the mind. So that's generally what you would do. Other just sort of basic tips, keep your eyes open. So if you sit with your eyes closed, practice sitting with your eyes open. Not looking around, of course, but just the light itself can help keep the mind more awake. Practice standing up with your eyes open can help. Other questions about sitting practice that come to mind? Mm -hmm. Judy. Well, I don't usually um, try to sit through pain. I'm kind of a fidgety person a little bit. And so this time I was trying to to just do that. And I was, I wanted to sit up straight because I felt better for my lungs because I really wanted to be straight. But when I would come up straight on my sitting room somewhere, it was just like really painful. So I kept kind of backing off a little bit and then trying to come back up there. but. I mean, I was just kind of trying to, you know, be open to it, and um, and I find myself going just kind of ha 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 ha. <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I I was also going like I don't know I don't really know that I know what the point of this is because I don't know this doesn't make too much sense to me. Uh huh. So I don't know I just. Well, the whole form is about the whole form of formal sitting practice, this whole ritual of formal sitting practice, is just to reflect the mind back to ourselves so we can learn something about the mind. That's the only reason. So the instruction to sit still, you know, there's, there's nothing magical about being still except that it supports two things. It does support the mind getting quieter because when we physically move, the mind moves too. So the less physical movement, the quieter the mind gets. That's one reason. The other is, it challenges us, right? So the mind reacts to this instruction not to move. And that's useful to see, to see how the mind resists that instruction not to move. So we're just trying to learn about the conditioning of the mind and its nature. And so we, we need the quieting down, the concentration or the samadhi and then the form the other part of the form is it just it's something to react to react against rather and so you just notice that like notice the voice the impulse to move 
Now, normally, we would just assume that's me, right? I want to move. We just assume that. But because we've got this form, you know, and we're sitting with a bunch of other people, we're not as likely to move. Of course, we, we still do move, but maybe not as much as we'd move if we were sitting at home. So here we are sitting. We've got this form, this ritual about sitting still, sitting upright, sitting still, staying relaxed. And just like you so nicely described it, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> right? It's such a joke because it's, it's an impossible task to be relaxed, to be awake, to be still, to be upright. It's, it's a joke because it just brings up a lot in us a lot of the time. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. But that stuff that it brings up for us, we have this opportunity to see it and to feel the impulse to take that reactivity personally. Like, this is a stupid practice. Or doubt. Why am I doing this? So that arises with great regularity and we have an opportunity every time it comes up to see, is this self or is this just a thought? If we take it as me, I have doubt, like why I'm doing this, or I think this is a stupid practice, well then, we'll, li we'll live our life as if that's the truth. And then we'll get tight, because we're, you know, we're stupid enough to come to meditation class, you know, and we're just kicking ourselves, or we're railing against how stupid the Buddha must have been, or something like that. Or just reacting, you know, like I'm no good, everyone else can do this practice, but I can't. And, and basically, what we're doing through that process of reacting to the form is we're creating suffering. So even if we do that, then there's another moment of insight that we can have, which is waking up to how we manufacture suffering. So either we wake up right at the beginning and we see, oh, that impulse to move is just a thought. It's just not liking. And the mind state of not liking is like this. So we have that opportunity to notice the aversion without taking it personally. That's a profound insight. Every time we get a little glimpse that these afflictive emotions like aversion, hating something, not liking something, or fearing something, every time we get a little glimpse that this is just what it is, that it's not personal, that is a revolution in the mind. To be able to relate to our mind states as just conditional phenomena, conditioned phenomena, just impersonal conditioned phenomena. But even if we miss that and we get dragged into the whole, that whole process of association, so we have that impulse, we judge ourselves or we get angry at the practice or whatever, and then that leads to more thinking and we get all bound up, right? And then we realize, oh, I'm all, I'm all bound up. I'm just suffering here. Here I am. I was feeling pretty good today, you know, and I go and I'm sitting in a relatively comfortable room with people who seem relatively safe, and I'm really suffering. Isn't this interesting? All of a sudden, we, we have another insight, which is the cause of suffering has to be here because, you know, this is a relatively safe thing to be doing. Why do I feel so, un so much unpleasantness, so much suffering? And we begin to see that the suffering is being manufactured here in the mind according to how we're relating or understanding or being with the experience. If we're being with our experience in a very self-centered way, we suffer. If we're being with experience 
in an open, wise way, which understands that things are just what they are, there's less suffering, and at times no suffering. So there's a lot to be learned just engaging the form over and over and over again. But it, we have to appreciate how messy it is. That's the point. I mean, we do have this intention to cultivate samadhi, that tranquility, that we stereotypically associate with meditation practice, right? When you ask somebody who's never meditated before, they'll tell you, oh yeah, you get really chilled out, you know, you get calm. And it's true. It's a really important talent to slowly, I mean, it'd be nice to develop it quickly, but to slowly develop that talent to be able to really quiet the mind down. And the ease in the body that comes with the quietness in the mind, it's really great. It's great in the beginning, like in any time you experience experience it, but it, it, it especially is great because it helps us have deeper insight. Because the mind, when it's tranquil and quiet, it just sees things more clearly. Because there's just less agitation disturbing that part of the mind that sees things, knows things. So we do want to cultivate tranquility, but we have to understand that the whole setup form is about uh, illuminating the mind. And it's often an unpleasant thing to see because the mind's reactive. The mind wants to control things that can't be controlled. It wants safety in a world that's inherently vulnerable and not in our control. You know, It wants things to look like we think they should look, but things never will look the way we think they should look because the concept of how we think whatever is, is always going to be different than the experience as it actually is, without the filter of the concept. So there's the, all these sort of inherent discrepancies between the mind and things as they are, which we call Dhamma. And so when we sit, that's what becomes most prevalent, is the, the difference between the conditioning of the mind and the way things are. And the condition of the mind is ignorant, meaning it's out of alignment with the way things are. But we have to sort of be in that place of friction to come into alignment. So then our understanding, our concepts, slowly come into alignment with the way things are, our understanding, our view. It's forced because it's so painful to be out of alignment. But when we're distracted, we can live out of alignment for a long, long time, forever probably. But when the mind quiets down, then the, uh, the, the disharmony becomes overwhelming. And so we have all the right incentives for wisdom to arise, that alignment to arise. Otherwise, we'll just go about struggling against things. But we're, we're constantly changing our battles as in our daily life, so we don't realize how painful it is because we're always sort of entranced with the next struggle. And, and you know, every once in a while we notice how exhausted we are or how difficult life is. But mostly we keep ourselves so well occupied that we don't realize how much we're suffering. But it doesn't mean we're not suffering. So that's a pep talk. <laughs> I mean, for whatever value my practice has delivered, I feel like I owe it all to just showing up. You know, I don't know how long it's been since 1982, where I've been a, a very regular practitioner, probably, you know, with just just some a few exceptions every day. And it's just that showing up has made such a difference. 
just showing up. It never seems like my practice is very good, <laughs> you know, in the, in the sort of idealistic or stereotypic sense that we think of meditation practice, you know, where there's, I mean, it, it happens, but mostly it's painful. And even as I, even as my practice has developed, <laughs> I feel like I have some real insight, still it's painful. I just have a lot more space with the pain, with the difficulty. I don't judge myself as much. You know, when my practice is really un unpleasant, I have a lot more patience with it. Mm -hmm. Maybe time for one more. If anybody else has a question about sitting practice before we go on. question, although it's basically the origin of, the question of the origin of suffering. Like, how is it that we got in this predicament? And um, it really is one of those questions that seems like we really should answer it. But the question really should be, we are suffering. So how does this suffering that we're experiencing in our daily life, in our sitting practice, how does that suffering arise? The, the, I think that's how the Buddha would answer your question, because people ask him this question, and as interesting as this is as a philosophical question, he says there's no answer to it. It doesn't have a beginning. And he says it's not a useful question to ask. That it, the, the, the important question is how does suffering arise in this heart? now because that's really what we care about the fact that this heart gets bound up so but it is an interesting question <laughs> for those of us who like those kind you know to like to speculate philosophically how things come to be he answered that one time by saying i could answer i could give you an answer but um You'd die before I'd finished explaining it. <laughs> really? I didn't get yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> it's too, too long and complicated. Yeah. And it's often, those kinds of questions is often we use as a way to avoid feeling our, our own suffering. You know, it's just like uh, instead of addressing the work we actually need to do. It's like if you have a mess at home, it's amazing how busy we can get doing other things and avoid the one thing we really should be addressing. And I, I think this is related to that. Well, I want to continue tonight. I began a, about a month ago a series of talks about how we can begin to integrate practice into our daily life so that we don't have this idea that my spiritual practice is just about this 30-minute or 45-minute thing I do most days called sitting practice. But so we can use the whole day, or whole waking day at least, to practice. And I'll just remind us of a few things I've mentioned in the past few weeks, in case you weren't here. But the first uh, just technique, I guess you could say, that you can begin to play with, and I think play is the right word or experiment with, is just slowing down. Not necessarily slowing down the whole day, 
but just take a particular place in your life and have a very clear intention to slow down a little bit. Or another way to do this is to soften your heart a little bit. So like if when you go to Rainbow to shop or the co-op to shop, you know, sometimes people go to those places, they've got this very like in and out mentality. I'm, I'm, I'm in, take care of business, and then we're out. You know, that was supposedly what we were going to do in Iraq. We're going to get in, take care of business, <laughs> and get out. And, uh, and so we can just slow it down or soften it so that this, in a way, it's inviting a wisdom that we wouldn't have. Because when we have that mentality of getting in and out, just getting something done, then we, we sort of want to do it on automatic pilot. And we're not really there when we're there. <coughs> so part of bringing this, this revolutionary activity of mindfulness into ordinary moments of our life a way to help us remember, instead of like trying to remember, oh yeah, how do, no, I should be mindful, is just slow down a little bit. You'll naturally be more mindful if you slow down a little bit, eating your meal a little slower. I mean, it's amazing if you normally drive 65 on the freeway, if you just drive, you know, not even a big difference, just drive 60, it will feel so weird because it, it's so different. It's like. You'd be, you're feeling like you're doing something wrong. Or if you just pause between bites while you're eating, you know, just for a few seconds. Nothing that would, like, look strange to anybody. But just put your fork down. For Just putting your fork down is enough, actually. <laughs> just let it all the way down before you pick it back up. And it will just kind of punctuate the activity with awareness. Because we generally use a lot of the regular activities of our life to get lost in. So the activity itself is what the mind uses to get lost. So if we break the cycle, we have these gaps. Like our habit energy has been broken. There's some space. And in that space, before we can fill it up with thought, there will be a moment of just knowing, oh, this is how it is brushing my teeth just like this. Driving in traffic is like this. You know, and then we'll get lost, but then we'll re sort of be reminded because the change of pace or the softening in the heart will serve as that reminder. And like, it holds the intention to actually be there when we're doing something. So that was something I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. And then uh, more recently I mentioned this technique of remembering the possibility of freedom. And this is like uh, bringing to mind, it's a lot of work, it can be a lot of work, to bring to mind our deepest intention, which I'll sort of summarize as to be free. Or one of the ways the Buddha talked about it is the unshakable release of the heart. So if this is truly our aspiration, then it makes sense. Like if we want to be happy, we should practice being happy. If we want to be strong, we practice, you know, lifting things. So if we want to be free, then we should practice being free. So the key here with this technique is to find ways to creatively remind you that the whole point of your life isn't to get a good bank account or to get to Friday, but to be free or to be happy. 
or to be at ease or to be peaceful. So you can just put the word that you like there that is an inspiration for you or somehow reminds you of what you actually, from your own experience, know is possible, the kind of ease or peace or love that you've experienced. And then just basically we're asking, well, what about now? Is this possible now? What's in the way now? Why not now? And to kind of keep it alive. So however you do that, you can, you know, people leave little notes for themselves. I finally found the reference to that Ajahn Buddha Dasa story. He was this famous Thai monk from the last century. And once when Ajahn Sumedho was visiting, who was a, Ajahn Sumedho is like now probably the senior Western Buddhist monk in the Theravada tradition at least. And uh, he was visiting um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa in southern Thailand, probably back in the 60s or 70s. And he asked him, you know, if you were stuck on a deserted island, what would you have? What would you bring? And he said, I'd want a note that has this phrase. It's sometimes translated as suchness or thusness. But the way, uh, this is how it is. It's the isness. It's like remembering, this is how it is. This situation, this moment, this body experience, this is how it is. That's what he'd want, is that little note with that on, or a little medallion with that printed on it. So we can do this. <laughs> we can write a little note and put it in our pocket or put it on our computer screen or on our fridge. Or just have symbols or images that remind us of freedom or whatever you believe is possible for your heart. And then last week I started talking about sila. Sila is the Pali word for morality or ethical conduct, or living in harmony. And it's a, a third of the spiritual practices the Buddha organized it. So this is where we're bringing awareness, mindfulness, this clear, open presence into our relationship with another person, with the community, with our jobs, how we earn a living. So, and we're, through the process of bringing awareness into this world of relationships, we're learning to live harmoniously. And part of the sila, this area of practice, is what are called the five precepts for lay people. Monks and nuns have over 200 rules to follow, but lay people fortunately only have five. <laughs> and these are training rules, meaning it's a little bit like I was saying to, in response to Judy's comment about sitting practice as a form that then reflects back the nature of our mind. So we have a better opportunity to see, to understand the nature of the mind. Well, it's the same thing with the precept, like the first precept, to undertake the training to refrain from harming and killing living beings. Well, that, that illuminates a lot, because then when we walk into the store and we're reaching for the hamburger, it might arise in our mind. Now, how does this fit? I'm not saying that eating meat is wrong. I'm just saying that it's an appropriate question ask, like how to live up to that precept in a world that is constantly consuming life. That's what we do. We eat life, whether we're a plant eater or a meat eater or something in between, whatever that might be. Or if we eat food that's not really food. <laughs> There's a new book I, I just saw. It's the number one on the New York Times bestseller list for uh, nonfiction. 
Michael Poland, is that his name? What's the name of the book? Omnivore's Dilemma. And he has this, the subtitle is something like, uh, maybe somebody remembers it, but it's basically, yeah, but it's something like, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, yeah, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And the, the thing that's great about it is like this idea that we should eat food, like real food, instead of processed food. But uh, anyway, it's just we, we live in this messy world. So these precepts aren't about becoming perfect. It's about raising our awareness about what it's like to live in this messy world so that we can undermine our tendency towards idealism, all kinds of idealism. We have idealism. Being a cynic is a form of idealism. You know, anytime we're living in our views or concepts, then we're disconnected. So we, we, we use the precepts to get connected to the way things are. And then, like I said, to live in alignment with what we see, what we're actually seeing, experiencing. So last week I talked in terms of sila practice, which is you know something that we could. If this is all we did with our spiritual practice, is just bring awareness in how we relate, how we earn a living, how, what we eat, what we say to people, what we don't say, what we're afraid to say to people. That would definitely lead to enlightenment, whether we actually formally sit or not. But the trouble, the nice thing about sitting is it really helps develop the quality of attention so then when we live our life and are choosing what to eat and what to say and what not to say we just have a lot more clarity in the mind if we sit that's the advantage of sitting is that it helps but this whole area of ethical conduct is such a ripe area and in a way we get the biggest bang for the buck in terms of bringing awareness the kind of immediate uh, happiness we can have by avoiding doing something really unskillful is amazing I mean, just think about the last week, how many terrifically unskillful things we avoided doing that we had the impulse to do. Things we had the impulse to say, but we didn't. Or things that we had the impulse not to say, but we fortunately did say. Or, you know, all the things we could have acted out because we felt it alive in us, but we didn't because we knew better. So we're already practicing sila. If we didn't, we'd be either in prison or dead, right? Because if we really just acted out all our impulses, we'd be in trouble. So last week I talked about the creative use of restraint, like to not think of restraint as a weight in our life, but something that we use creatively that leads to happiness and to joy, that happy human beings have learned to restrain themselves. And I mentioned last week this image that Ajahn Mahabua said in one of his books. He's this 94, five-year-old Buddhist monk, famous monk in Thailand. And he says, what is it that separates us from dogs in heat? Why are we different than dogs in heat? Which I talked about last week. Is they're, it's very violent. If you've ever seen a pack of dogs with one of them in heat, it's a really miserable thing to watch. And human beings aren't always that bad. So what is it that keeps us from just acting out our animal nature blindly? 
And it's this creative use of restraint. It's like we understand, because of wisdom, we understand that it's useful to put a break on some of our habit energy. And so we found ways to do that. And so when you take on these precepts, I'll just go through the five so you, in case you haven't heard them before. Undertaking the training not to harm or kill living beings. Number two is undertaking the training not to take what isn't freely offered or given. Number three is to undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Number four is to undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. And number five is to refrain from either the use or the misuse of intoxicants or any substance that clouds the mind just because of this value. This is the fifth one's in itself not uh, immoral in the sense of causing harm to you or to another being. But it just sets up harm. It just makes it more likely when we're intoxicated, when the mind's clouded. It just It's easier not to see an impulse, an unskillful impulse coming up and so we're more likely to just act it up because the mindset's so clear. But the other four, you know, really you can see, understand why harmful speech causes harm. And miscon- sexual misconduct causes harm. And stealing or taking things that aren't offered causes harm to ourselves and others. And directly harming, killing causes harm. So we have these five trainings that we can play with, we can work with creatively to protect ourselves and to protect others. It's like we understand, all of us understand how easy it is to make messes. I mean, even if somehow we have avoided making big messes in our lives, clearly or certainly we've seen people around us make big messes. You know, just how many relationships have gone bad, intimate relationships have gone bad, how much social injustice there is, racial prejudice, economic injustices, I mean, just on so many levels. So we see how greed, fear, anger gets acted out in the world, and we just know it's really easy to create suffering. So it makes sense, if we reflect on that, that we would be motivated to avoid contributing to that. At least, at the very least, we'd be motivated to avoid our own suffering. And the more we reflect on how we want to avoid our own suffering, it's harder to ignore the fact that other people also want to be free from suffering. So we then naturally start appreciating that, well, I also don't want to do things that are going to cause them to suffer because I'm so acutely aware of how I don't want to suffer, then it's, it's hard not to be sensitive to other people's needs to want to be free from suffering. What I thought I'd say a little bit tonight and continue with tomorrow, and, I, and in the weeks to come, we'll, we'll take a look at each of the five. So maybe next week we'll look more directly at sexual misconduct and then speech and then... Uh, just the use of intoxicants as a way of practicing in daily life. But tonight, as a way of reflecting more on the second precept of not taking what isn't freely given, it might be nice to just think a little bit about the place of contentment. The same teacher I mentioned a few minutes ago, Ajahn Mahabua. Ajahn is just a respectful title for a senior monk or nun. And uh, 
So this this monk Mahabua, uh, has he talks about these two summarizes like uh, two tenets of Buddhism as um, contentment with our belongings and fewness of wants, not having a lot of wants or needs. And this is, I mean, this makes so much sense on so many levels now, given the, the way the earth is handling having six billion or however many billion people there are. This, this very deep habit of acquisition that we have. And we don't challenge it. So one of the ways to creatively use restraint is to play with the possibility of contentment with what we already have. To be content what we have. I remember reading once the Dalai Lama said, instead of being content with our spiritual practice and discontent with what we have, we should practice being discontent with our spiritual practice and content with what we have. <laughs> so, and this is just a practice. I mean, I've really worked with this a lot in my life because I have a I have a little bit of a type A personality, some ambition in general, and uh, so I'm always thinking about things to do and become and get and uh, wanting to control and make things better, <clears throat> at least as I see it. And of course, it's just a lot of suffering. All of those tendencies are just painful, stressful. And so I worked with this contentment about like feeling drawn to get this and then actually reflecting, specifically reflecting on what I have and seeing that this is okay. What I have is okay. The situation is okay. And like feeling there's a, there's a very specific kind of bliss or joy that comes when we recognize, oh, this is okay. Like, probably everybody here could imagine how this body is not okay, the body that we have. And But yet, we could look at it another way, which, you know, as we tune into our bodies right now, however old your body is, however out of shape or whatever your body is or unhealthy your body is, we could just reflect on the, on the fact that it's functioning now. And maybe it's possible to be content with the body as it actually is now. And it doesn't mean we're not going to eat Wheaties tomorrow or you know, eat our oatmeal tomorrow instead of a Danish. All it means is right now we can experience a kind of contentment and ease with the way it is. And there is probably in each of our lives insecurity about money or about relationships, about health. But we can probably find ways to practice contentment. Like, it, we shouldn't assume that in a world of insecurity, discontentment is inevitable. Maybe we can consider the possibility of being content in a world that we're not in control of. So we're content knowing that the world may very much, I mean, may in fact be dying. The earth may be dying. Let's just, let's just assume that that's a probability. Of course, in the big picture, it's definitely dying, right? It's just a matter of time. So short term, it's dying. But it doesn't mean that we can't be content with our life, with nature as it is, 
content to do what we can do. And of course, this is, this is so essential because we all have a death sentence. You know, being human, being born means we're going to die. So is it possible to be content knowing that this physical life will end? Can, it be, can we be content with our relationships knowing that every single one of our relationships will end? So this is a way to practice. So instead of thinking of the second precept, you know, just like tying ourselves down so we don't take something that, we, that no one gave us, or if we see a nice pen that somebody dropped and no one, that person is nowhere to be seen, you know, just like, oh yeah. And then thinking, oh, no, 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 I can't take it. I can't take it because of the second precept. I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't practice that way, but you can turn these precepts around. So one way is to work with creative restraint. Another way is to actually cultivate an ideal, like the ideal of contentment, to really work with that possibility. Or instead of harming, we could work with the ideal of metta, loving kindness and compassion. Like, Find that possibility in our heart and then live it out. Live out the tenderness, the compassion. Find the contentment in our heart and then start to live it out. The thing about these wholesome mind states uh, is that with attention, wholesome mind states get stronger. With attention, unwholesome mind states get weaker. So if you look clearly at the mind state of anger, it falls apart. It doesn't hold up in the light of awareness. It doesn't make sense. If we pay attention to being really angry or fearful, it doesn't make sense and it will fall apart. And if you pay attention to a loving heart or a content heart, it actually, the contentment will build. It gets stronger, it gets more stable. Because by definition, in this system, and from my experience, uh, the wholesome mind states, by definition, are mind states that are, in our, that are in alignment with the way things are. So, love is in alignment with the way things are. Well, what, is, what does the Buddha mean by the way things are? Well, he means by the way things are that things are conditional, that, that all thoughts, all views, all concepts are just that. They're just thoughts and concepts. And so... The heart, in alignment with all of our thoughts and concepts, just being thoughts and concepts, not being somebody's thoughts and concepts, but just thoughts and concepts, then there's no place for self-centered fear and self-centered greed. So the only thing that's left is love. You don't even need to call it love, because it's actually nature is what's left, or the absence of self-centered greed and the absence of self-centered fear and the absence of self-centered anger and irritation, that's what's left. But, you know, we call it love, or we call it metta, or kindness, or compassion. But it's actually what's left when the self-centeredness is dropped in a moment. And this is the same thing with contentment and all the wholesome states, patience, forgiveness. These are the inherent qualities of a mind not under the influence of self-centered views. This is what's left. Well, there's a lot more to say about 
contentment, and maybe I'll pick it up again next week. I'll talk more, maybe a little bit more about the hungry ghost energy in us where we're never satisfied. But I'll leave it here because probably some of you have some comments to share from your own life around contentment or anything else that was said tonight or any way that you're practicing in your daily life that you'd like to share with the group or places in your daily life that you're finding it really difficult to practice that you'd just like to share with the group. So anything come to mind? Patty. Um, I had a question about, sometimes I get confused uh, about intention and me wanting to feel good. Like, um, you know, starting to meditate, you know, if I started, you know, with more goal of feeling better or mm-hmm. then, you know, to get away from feeling so much pain. But it gets confusing sometimes when I hear about the intention to be free from suffering and how to separate that from like a, just a, like a selfish goal. Yeah. And no, it's a, it's a really good question. And inevitably, we start the practice as an ego being that wants to be free of our suffering, right? So that's just how we always begin on some level. Or we're an ego being who wants to understand what's going on here. That's another entrance. So people get involved in spiritual practice in different ways. Some it's a real curiosity, the people who don't have a lot of suffering in their lives. And the people who do have a lot of suffering in their lives, it's they're trying to work with it, trying to understand it in a way that relieves it. But in any case, it's a selfish pursuit. But if we get on this path, which is about waking up or about mindfulness, then we will inevitably tease out the self-centeredness of the path, of the spiritual pursuit, because we'll just start noticing that that's always associated with stress. And then hopefully we'll get some good instruction from books, from teachers, that basically are pointing that out to us, that when we take that self wanting to be from suffering into the spiritual practice itself, it gets in the way. So if you're sitting in your meditation practice and what's front and center is Mark wanting to be free of this fear in my life or Mark wanting to be peaceful, that idea, that thought itself is a stressful thought. And if I'm, if I'm at all cultivating mindfulness, eventually it will dawn on me, this thought is just a thought and it's stressful. It's like this. When I say it's like this, that means we're tuning into the stressfulness of that thought directly. We're feeling the tightness of it. And then we'll let it go. When we see something is stressful or or, or related to suffering, we let go. The heart just lets go. Nobody intentionally suffers, creates suffering, supports suffering. We do it out of ignorance, out of the not seeing of it. So the... That intention, like you, you called it the intention, which I think is right, it gets purified. So there is a basic intention that gets us started, and that intention does need to be purified. But it will get purified in the practice of, of cultivating mindfulness in life. What else comes to mind? Jalan. Finding myself is really useful. Um, like when I'm getting really stressed out, and, ah, you know, there's peace in this moment. There's there's a way to be free. And I just 
asking to slow down and try and realize that. And it's helped a lot. I'm finding myself maybe not figuring out the solution, just being able to be there. But so I'm doing some of it in a way that's helpful to me, but then I'm doing other parts of it in a way that's not so helpful. I feel ridiculous. For the last week now, I've been beating myself up about spending 80 bucks at Target. <laughs> you know, and it's like, ah, you know, it's it's 80 dollars, which is a lot of money to me, but at the same time, it's not a lot of money in our society. And it's, I don't, I don't know. I'm just really conflicted about it. And I know that it's ridiculous to spend that much time on it, and that the lesson there is for me to let go. But it's, I guess, I'm just aware that the ideal of living with steps and what I would like to be doing with my life is very, very hard in the life that I'm presently living. And I don't know how to reconcile those. And I'm wondering if you have any yeah. suggestions. Well, it's a little bit like the discussion after Judy's comment, which is the precepts are simply there to reflect back to us the nature of the mind. So then you want to look at the tendency to go to Target and to shop and to spend money, and then look at the tendency to judge yourself for doing what you did, and then maybe judge yourself for judging yourself or not being able to let go of it. So but what that can reveal is that the mind is conditioned to act out of habit in a particular way, and that it's not personal, that there isn't a Julan making the mind this way, but it's just the mind's habit when the thought of target and what we might buy there arises in the mind, then desire is there. You know, when we have the image of what we could purchase, then we feel drawn. There's almost like this leaning forward going on in the mind. And then all of a sudden we notice that we're driving to target, you know, and we can just see that conditioned part of the mind that just acts out the impulses. And what we're noticing, that this is the great insight, is... Our life continues according to its conditioning, right? So we have to forgive ourselves for being a conditioned being. This is just how it is. But what we start seeing, this is the powerful insight, is that there is a... Now, it's really dangerous to name it, but there is the Buddha there, the calm, clear knowing of the conditioned mind, right? So we still have our conditioned personality. And when it gets triggered in different ways, then it acts out in different ways, just according to how it's been conditioned. And, of course, that does change over time. The conditioning gets changed over time. It may get worse. It may get better. It just depends on how we're living. But with insight, our relationship to the conditioned personality changes radically. And there's just a lot more space about being Mark or about being Jalan and the way that this mind is conditioned. And that spaciousness actually also helps us to change the conditioning. But whether or not the conditioning changes doesn't stop us from being a lot more free in the midst of this conditioned world. It's not just our personality that's conditioned. Everything's conditioned. Politics is conditioned, you know, all, their, you know, all that kind of stuff going on. And I mean, it's a mess. The world is a mess, and it's a conditioned mess, and there's no center to it. There's nobody we can blame, just like there's nobody you can blame about the North Woods. There's no center to Lake Superior either, and there's no center to the galaxy. I mean, we can say there's a center to the galaxy, but there's nobody responsible. There's not a, a person, a being, that's responsible for what we call this. 
And this is what we can see. And this brings a lot of freedom when you go to Target and spend money you don't have, or when you judge yourself for spending money you don't have, or when you judge yourself for not being able to let go of all that. It just brings a lot of space. Well, of course. It's like the cosmic grandmother, wise grandmother, just whispers over and over again, of course. Of course. This is how it is. This is how it is now. And we think that might lead to passivity, but you'll see, if you really cultivate this wisdom, you see it leads to a more full engagement in life. We're more committed, more dedicated to do what we can do to make it a better world. Because we don't feel so weighed down by the conditions that we're in the middle of. Our inner conditioning and our, the external conditioning of our society. Because we understand it's just conditioning. We don't take it personally. And we begin to understand how to play with it. You know, how to, how to actually uh, be an agent for change. And it's not about hating things, you know, because then we're an agent for hate. You know, it's about love. And love in the broadest sense of the word, which is acceptance. But, but, but it's really this, uh, this sort of uh, dance, you know, just sort of dancing with the conditions, staying really light with the conditions. And, and that sense of humor, or that uh, possibility of forgiveness, and willing to start over again, and to just do what we can. And it's mostly about seeing more. You know, the more we see, like if, if you had had the most clear mind you've ever had, if you had had it while you were walking into Target, things might have been different. Or if you had had it as you were walking out of Target, you might have caught that tendency to judge yourself and, and just said, this is how it is, honey. You know, this <laughs> mind's been programmed to shop. And this is what it did. You know, and now there there will be some tension around money, but that's how it is now, you know? Mm-hmm. Mike. Yeah, yeah, just keep putting in perspective that. It, those are just thoughts. But when we say something's just a thought, it's not an expression of aversion, like, oh, it's just a thought. We're not using that, it's just a thought, to kind of push something away. 
Because we're not saying it has meaning, but we're also not saying it doesn't have meaning. Like when we have a thought, or when we have a dream, or when we have a, an interaction. We're just understanding what it is. We're just, like you said, Mike, staying in that present moment. And we'll pick it up again next week, but just to tag on to what you said about Eckhart Tolle. <clears throat> Someone told me the other day that um, I got an email, actually, from one of my mentors out in California. And he said that Oprah is doing this course with Eckhart Tolle, and they have 750,000 people enrolled. It's an online course. You could probably Google it and find it, or go to her website and find it. Do you know anything about it, Cass? Yeah. So he's a, Eckhart Tolle is a well-known uh, uh, writer in this field of mindfulness. He's got a couple good books out, quite good. And uh, he's a popular figure. So it's just great that this is kind of getting out there. And of course, it's going to be messy. So don't assume that the world will transform. But I think it just keeps us uh, keeps things in balance. Like when we see the, the real dangers, we also see some really beautiful things that are happening, too. So it's not, you know, it's a, we need to have a balanced view. A lot of times I overemphasize the dark stuff. And that's just my conditioning. <laughs> so let's just let go of the words for a moment. Take a few breaths. And appreciate being here together. <clears throat> just how wholesome it feels to be having this intention to cultivate awareness or mindfulness in our lives, this capacity to be open in the present with things as they are. But to really take ownership, to learn through trial and error what this is really about as a way of taking care of ourselves and a way of taking care of all beings. So this is our real motivation to be a cause for peace and wisdom and compassion in the world. And thanks again for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.